the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. My next guest, Noah Rothman, who's editor at Commentary.org, and he's a contributor over at MSNBC, has written a book with, I think, a similar theme. It's called The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. And Noah Rothman joins us now. Mr. Rothman, glad to have you here. Good morning. Thank you, Chris. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. I, I don't know if it's exactly the same, but I wonder if there's a similar strain in what Fareed wrote and uh, your new book. Yeah, quite likely. Um, so Mr. Buttigieg is right. It's it's an, a deliberate effort not to be a jerk. And if someone asks you to do something, behave a certain way, and you're, you as a well-socialized person are obliged to do that. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about this uh, campaign and crusade on pronouns. I mean, there's been efforts in statute to say nothing of uh, at the private level to try to punish people for not pro- proactively and preemptively uh, using language that does violence to the English language. Uh, the, the notion here that you can you know, pluralize and that somehow conveys the same thing as uh, singular. But it, there is an all-consuming impulse on the part of the modern progressive left, a puritanical impulse that imposes its vision of society in a totalitarian way, that all things and all activities must actively contribute to the progressive project. That which does not is idle, and that which is idle is evil, or has at least the potential to be evil. Um, there's, As the left has identified left with liberalism and more with progressivism, they've adopted its habits of mind. Among them, a utopianism, a fear of wickedness and banal pastimes, and a hatred of that which is not actively contributing to the progressive project. It's accompanied by great displays of discomfort and self-denial. It's how you communicate your piety and your discipline. And it's total, because it is not a private practice. It means to draft you into it. Uh, a lot of this has its roots in progressivism's puritanical past. I try to tease those roots out in this book and identify the ways in which they're adulterating everything you enjoy in life, from the entertainment you consume to the comedy you enjoy to the food you eat to the sports you watch or increasingly don't, because you are treated to prolonged digressions about the lamentable state of race relations in America and your sports coverage. And when you object, you're admonished for clinging to your need for an escapism over your duty to dwell on the world's miseries. That's what this book is about. And nine out of the ten people I spoke with who are genuinely on the left, who wouldn't vote for a Republican if you had a gun to their head, are, are, being, are beginning to resent this, object to it. It is sapping them of the joy they have for their life's work, which should exist outside politics. But can is no it? longer. Nothing yeah. can exist outside politics. Noah Rothman is uh, author of a brand new book called The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. Is it possible? This is just a general 30,000-foot view question. I, I, maybe, maybe the answer is no. Maybe I already know my answer. Can, can corporate America, can professional sports, uh, kind of the big things that we all participate in, regardless of our politics, can, can we unplug 
from the politics and just be uh, a political uh, marketplace and a political uh, professional sports league? Or is that just not possible anymore, do you think? Well, on the corporate level, it's increasingly impossible. Um, on the individual level, it is still possible, but you have to actively try to do that. You have to escape politics in an active way, which no longer makes this a passive pastime, whatever your passive pastime is. Um, they divine this, this particular outlook, which is not all Democrats, not all liberals, and certainly not even all progressives, but a puritanically inclined progressive that punches way above their weight and has managed to capture a lot of institutions, including sports broadcasting networks like ESPN, including um, uh, leagues like the NFL. Uh, in part because they they are they genuinely believe in the in the great ideals of the, of the progressive project, as we define it, roughly racial rapprochement, environmental uh, protection, and erasing the distinctions between uh, income levels and class disparities. Uh, in an, in an ideal, as an abstract, that's something that they agree with. The practice of it, however, is becoming increasingly totalitarian and aggressive, and uh, designed to uh, ensure that every facet of society uh, is engineered towards that goal. All oars are rowing in that direction. And it has become a perfectionism, which is the enemy of uh, the good, the perfect being the enemy of the good. The pursuit of perfectionism is the enemy of fun, of joy. Uh, so you can no longer enjoy sewing, for example, or knitting, or fly fishing, or your, your holidays, hanging out with your, your family at Christmas. All of these things have to be adulterated with some form of misery to communicate how committed you are to the cause. And the people who are committed to the cause, in one way or another, are bullied and forced to, uh, to do what this progressive movement wants it to do, most of which ends up becoming the opposite of what it's supposed to do, what its mission statement is, which is, in this case, sports. It has to also be dedicated to erasing racial disparities in America, which it cannot do well, so it does nothing well. So here's what I think, and I don't know you personally, Mr. Rothman, but I... I assume, given the, the thrust of your book and your conversation here, you're, you're probably in this camp. I, I know a lot of Democrats with whom politically maybe I don't align, but I I know they're not what I would deem as radical. Uh, I mean, I, I gather with them around tables. I, I get, you know, and have dinner with them. I, I you know, holidays with them. Some are in my family. I mean, it's, it's you know, and, and we function and we get along just fine. Uh, and I... I don't get into it too often, but I wonder what where they go if, in fact, they do feel alienated from maybe a party that, that that's very, very hostile uh, in some ways, kind of, as you say, this so, uber puritanical progressive movement. Uh, maybe they're not inclined to ever vote for Republicans. Do they just sit out then and say, well, I can't participate? There's no home for me or where, where do they, they go, do you think? Well, I don't know. And I, I mean, I try to make I try to write charitably about this. I'm not a man of the left. I never have been. Um, but I know many of them. And, and as I said, I try to write charitably about what I think are their ideals in the abstract. And these, this book is organized by virtues. The chapters are organized by unimpeachable values, piety, prudence, austerity, temperance, order, and a fear of God. These are things that are beneficial to a society that's dedicated to its own self-preservation. And in the, in the abstract, the practice of this philosophy in that way wouldn't be especially um, troubling and uh, aggressive and totalitarian, uh, if it was moderated by some sort of uh, charity, as you describe, like um, a general sense that the people that they're trying to convert towards what they believe to be this all-consuming mission statement 
are good people at heart. Um, there increasingly isn't that assumption on the part of the pr- practitioners of this really demanding faith. Uh, and yeah, what do they do? What do the people who are alienated by it do? They drop out of the process, more or less. Uh, they don't have a home on the right, but they don't have, feel like they have a home on the left, at least the left that they see on a day-to-day basis. So maybe they can make a distinction in their minds between voting for a Democratic politician who doesn't really endorse any of this kind of aggressive practice of this kind of secular faith, uh, and they can draw that distinction and justify the vote. But the, the practice of their politics on a day-to-day basis, the activism that has consumed what was otherwise just the, their day-to-day business, making a burrito. For some reason, the burrito has been invested with world historic import. The burrito <laughs> represents... The burrito represents entire ethnic cult classes and cultures, and you are to handle it with fine care, lest you be appropriative or, or some other form of a, of a, a you know an unsocialized person, an, an immoral person, uh, and that's exhausting. It's frankly exhausting. So yeah, yeah most like your most your first step is to drop out. Your second step is to convert, but that's a long time off. That's what an important thing you just said. By the way, you you bring to mind the the Doctor Jill Taco thing. I mean, I you know, like they, it's it's interesting. I mean, um, everybody had a little fun with it, but but people really did get very angry at her about the taco bit um, last week. Uh, to your point, um, but I, I the goodwill argument is one that I uh, I try to make often here. If you're someone of goodwill, and I don't agree with you, I can I can love you and, and be with you and be around you anytime, all the time, and it. It feels like not too long ago, not too terribly long ago. I mean, in my memory, there was a period of time where you said, well, he's, yeah, he votes this way, but he's a good guy or she's a good lady. I Like, I like them. They're still nice people. We just don't see eye to eye politically. Uh, that, you know, that Tip O'Neill Reagan thing. I mean, is that just, is that just dead and buried? It's mostly dead. It's mostly uh, dead, unfortunately. I mean, there's a lot of theories about why. Um like you can start, I, I agree with you. You can be wrong in good faith because you can argue with somebody who's wrong in good faith. You can't argue with somebody who's wrong in bad faith. And, and you can spot the difference. And there's theories as to why one of them that I find um, attractive is as the two major parties have sacrificed power and they've given power up to the voters in form of primaries. Um, you know, conventions no longer nominate candidates. It's it's mostly limited to the activist class. And as the parties have declined in their power and their ability to intervene and moderate the will of the demos, um, the public has stepped into that vacuum and assigned themselves the role of communication staffers on a campaign. So the, the public feels invested in this idea that they can't really tell the truth. They have to spin. They have to mm-hmm. manipulate. They have to advance the ball for their particular team, even though they're not getting a cut of the action. It's just part of the team that they're on. And the, the, that tribal impulse triggers in them this belief that they have to behave in um, ways that are uh, disingenuous. So and you mean once upon a time there was if, if, for instance, you saw something that Trump or Biden were doing that you you just knew in your gut was n- not truthful or not good or uh, misguided, you would just say it. You think historically there was a time where someone would just say it regardless of whether it benefited their politics or not. And now they don't. Well, not entirely, but there was a, a reward structure there for somebody who was a legitimate truth teller. Um, there were all the impulses that we have today were apparent generations ago or were available generations ago. And, and there were a lot of people who succumbed to them. But there were rewards for being a truth teller who bucked your party's you know, orthodoxy. And there was quite a lot more um, distinctions, geographic distinctions, uh, or fewer geographic distinctions, rather, between 
Republicans and Democrats, there wasn't so much sorting and there was a lot more crossover voting. So we do have a little bit more of a homogenized political culture that reduces the incentives for Mm -hmm. being charitable, for being moderate, for being willing to buck the party line and incur the wrath of your your co-partisans. And that's never fun when the members of your group, your tribe, uh, turn on you, uh, that there's a lot of social uh, pressures to avoid doing that. They are slightly more pronounced now than they were in generations past. Uh, But they were always present, sure. That was my next question, Noah Rothman, the rise of the new Puritans fighting back against progressives' war on fun. How much of this has to do with things like Twitter and social media generally? Has that changed the game demonstrably, I would guess? Uh, I think it has. I mean, there's a very small amount of people who are actually on Twitter relative to the population. Right. But the people who are on Twitter and follow Twitter and post regularly are very influential. We're talking about politicians and uh, actors and members, all members of the governing class, uh, NGOs and, and the judiciary and the law. And that level of saturation of influential people, even in a very small audience, creates an echo chamber effect that amplifies voices that are utterly unrepresentative of the body politic. And that, combined with the fact that there's an attention economy at work here, that in order to be heard above the din, you have to reach for a maximalist position, a hyperbolic position, uh, speak as loud as possible to get the endorphin rush of engagement, reaction, interaction. Um, That creates an echo chamber that is amplifying the worst possible voices. And the people who are attuned to it are, are... Influencers are our governing class. So, yes, I think that contributes quite a lot to it. Um, but that kind of maximal, they, it didn't create the maximalism that we have now. It didn't create this puritanical ethos to ensure that all of society's engines are running in the same way, in the same direction. It just accelerated it. I would say, and I'll close with this, Noah, it's, it's a, just a personal um, observation, and I don't think it's profound. I'm just saying it. I mean this when I say uh, goodwill, I come from a place of goodwill and good faith when I say as a conservative, I genuinely, sincerely wish no one harm or ill. And I want everyone to live their lives as they see fit. I I would just very much like to be left alone and not feel as though I'm (laughs) assailed by others for not sharing their point of view. And I think I speak for most Americans when I say that. I think. But it just feels like it's an all-out assault constantly on my sensibilities that I'd better get my head right or else. That's how I that feel. Is the message, that is the message of this book, is that the answer to this kind of uh, joyless maximalism is to live a joyful life and to give you permission, I think, to laugh at these people because they are objectively funny. And there's a commercial <laughs> element that will dismantle it. Uh, it's bound up in the phrase banned in Boston. In the late 19th century, banned in Boston was a warning against impure literature, impious literature, the societies for the suppression of vice organized around great threats to the social contract, like Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, that seditious tome. Uh, and they were very <laughs> successful. But after a while, Band in Boston became not a warning against impure literature, but a powerful advertisement for it. Publishers actively sought to have their books banned in Boston and the, to generate sales across the country. The modern equivalent is banned on Amazon, banned wow. on Facebook. When conservative books are targeted by 20-somethings who have no idea what they're doing, it elevates these books beyond the PR campaigns that are dedicated to them. And they become wild bestsellers because of this, this advertisement for a titillating literary experience you simply have to have for yourself. Um, there's, <laughs> there's, an ele- there's an element of breaking taboos that is just part of a free society, and it's a low price to pay to have a free society. But there will always be iconoclasts 
And this movement cannot cannot countenance the existence of, of rule breakers, of iconoclasts. So be one. So does that mean you're hoping that uh, your book will be hated? Uh, it will be dis- the, the, you will be the disdain of the American left, so it will shoot to number one quickly. I would assume the rise of the new Puritans. You hope it's hated. It is my it is my fondest hope that somebody cancels my new book, the rise of the new Puritans, <laughs> fighting back against progressives' war on fun. Everybody wins. <laughs> Good luck on being hated, Mr. Rothman. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership program offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.